Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good evening to all of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being online. We're going to cover the book of Romans tonight. Did you hear that? We're going to cover the book of Romans tonight. Now, next week we'll slow down and go into chapter 1. But tonight we're going to hit the high places. Question. What if someone were to ask you, what must I do to be saved? And tell you to show it to them in the Bible. Where would you go? Well, you'd go to Acts 2.38. You'd go to Saul of Tarsus. You'd go to Ethiopian eunuch. I would too. But what if somebody said, explain God's plan of salvation to me? Go to the same place. They say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't understand that. I know what it says. I believe I should do it. But how does that work? What is, what is God's plan? Well, his plan is to, for you to obey him and he's going to save you. How's he going to do that? Well, he's God, isn't he? That doesn't work. There are some things that God can't do. He cannot lie. He cannot overlook sin. We then have to go to the book of Romans. Book of Romans is a different kind of book. It is the manual for the development of the plan of salvation. You buy a new automobile, you know how to drive it, or you read how to drive it, you do that. You don't have to understand what happened back at the factory. The designing. But this is the design. Romans is the design of the plan of salvation. I'm sure that many of the people who obeyed the gospel didn't know that. And they were saved because they obeyed the gospel. We're going to look in this course at God's plan of salvation. Only a few years after the sacrifice for sin, our Lord knocked on the door of a Christian in the city of Damascus. And he said, Arise, go to a street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for he is praying. I love that. Because uh, Ananias said, uh, Lord, uh, there's something you don't know. I like for people trying to advise the Lord. There's something you don't know. This is a wicked man. He is here to arrest us, and you want me to go over there to him? Go. He is a chosen vessel of mine. You know what Ananias did? He went. He will bear my name before the Gentiles, my name before the kings, my name before the children of Israel. How long had God been planning this? I don't know. But I do know this. For 2,000 years, the city of Tarsus had been a very important city. It was located just 10 miles out of this Mediterranean Sea on the river of Sidness. 
It was known for its great goat's hair, black goat's hair, used to make cloth. More than that, it was used to make cloth for tents, but also for sails and vessels. It was the strongest. And Saul of Tarsus knew how to do that. Because see, Saul wanted to be a rabbi. And rabbis had to have a way of making a living. The great men of that day, the great armies, navies, came to Tarsus to buy material for sales. In the second century BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a Greek ruler, gave status to this place, Tarsus, and made it a Greek city-state. That was a great thing. When Rome defeated the Seleucids, Tarsus became a part of the Roman Empire. Antony, that was Cleopatra's boyfriend, declared it a free city in 42 B.C. And there it stood. The citizens were Roman citizens. The citizens of that little town of Tarsus became Roman citizens. You see what's happening here? At age 12, the Jewish boys could enter school in Jerusalem. We don't know when Saul went there. We don't have any idea, but the the idea we have that he is a Sadducee of the Sadducees, and mom and dad probably rushed him down there as soon as they could because they want him to be a great rabbi. And he goes, learns, and then on occasion went to the high priest to ask permission to go to Damascus to bind Christians. And he started on a journey that was beyond his wildest imaginations. Saul knew little when Ananias' hands plunged him beneath those waters of baptism. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was ashamed. And yet his sinful life was transformed in that baptism to become a child of God. And then God took him into the third heaven and showed him things that were unlawful for men to utter. Now let's look at the facts about the book of Romans. Number one, it presents a systematic theology of Christian doctrines. Publicize the gospel to the world and presents Jesus Christ as the means of salvation. It is the only book that does all that in that concise form. That book is very important. God authorized Saul of Tarsus, later Paul, to write that book a theology, a systematic theology that is found nowhere else in Scripture in that concise form. Dr. Barclay Newman and Eugene Nida said this, if the Apostle Paul had written nothing else, he would still be recognized as one of the outstanding Christian thinkers of all times on the basis of this letter alone, and that is correct. But Paul wrote 12 other letters, And they're all great too. Not the depth of theology here. Now let's begin our overview. After a personal greeting to the Romans, he says, I'm a debtor to the wise and unwise, to the Greek barbarians. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. Everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The world was in a terrible shape. The world was full of sin. The world was filled with the kind of sin we cannot even, yes, we can't imagine now. But here's how it's described. Because of their paganistic beliefs, God had given the Gentiles up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for the, uh, that is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of women, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing that which is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error that was due. I'm amazed that men have such a time understanding that. I want to say before I start on this, before I get into it next week, that I love people who are homosexual. God has given them a way to be saved. But I hate their homosexuality. I hate it. And some of them don't know better. And some of them have found Christ. And I continue to work with some. A man in Jamaica came to me and said, explain to me why this is wrong. I said, get your Bible. He said, I don't understand that. I said, get your Bible. You'll understand it. I read from Romans 1. Got about halfway through. He said, wait a minute. I told you I couldn't understand it. I don't understand that. I explained it to him. He said, well, that's kind of old. No, it's not just old. It is, uh, it is the truth of God's word. God's power to salvation is the gospel of Christ. Not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's God's power to salvation. Oh, we have Moses. We don't need that. Oh, so wrong you are. We heard what you said there in Romans 1, the Jews say, but that doesn't apply to us because we don't have those problems, at least not to the extent the Gentiles did. We are Moses' followers. We are Abraham's seed. Those things don't affect us. But look at chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whosoever you shall judge. For in whatever you judge, another you condemn yourselves, for you who judge practice the same things. Well, we don't do it exactly like them, no. But you practice the same things. To what extent? Any extent is wrong. Involved in sin in any way is wrong. And Jewish friends, you're doing the same thing. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you not steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're in the breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Ouch. That's too strong for me to take. I don't believe a word of that, they would say. But it was true. Chapter 3. Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Absolutely not. We have previously charged, Paul says, both Jews and Greeks, that they're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We're going to use our first section beginning next week to get down to this verse, Romans 3, verse 10. 
all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. That is scary. Because I thought I was righteous. I'm the good person. You're the evil person. I'm the good person. Not so. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. And I'm not going to tell you in this class what that means. It is bad. The Bible clearly teaches that a man must respond to God's plan of salvation. He cannot rely on his own intellect. He cannot say, I'm good. I'm righteous. I have my own righteousness. I don't need anything else. God will bless me because of my righteousness. Acts 2.38. Peter said, repent to those Jews on Pentecost and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, to your children, to your descendants, and to all that are far off. That's you and me, the Gentiles. Even as many as the Lord your God shall call. Chapter contains a wonderful statement regarding God's plan of redemption. There in verse 24, 26. And we're going to camp out on this when we get there. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ, whom God has sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Notice he didn't say he will he will present your righteousness. He will present his righteousness because we don't have any righteousness on our own. How very sad. That passage flies through the face of in the face of those who believe that there is salvation through merit. Judaism was and is steep in that philosophy. I can be good enough to save myself. I can be righteous enough to save myself. Not so. Don't start thinking that way. It is damning to your soul. Because once you make one sin, you've declared yourself not righteous before God. That's against natural belief because... If I do something wrong, I can make up for it. I can do enough good to make up for it. And all I have to do is try to, you know, good, bad, just try to keep the balance that way. Do something mean, I have to do something good. Maybe a lot of Hail Marys, whatever that means. Or a lot of Bible reading. Or a lot of service. I want to tell you something here. The Hindus are even worse than we are on that. 1.2 billion Hindus, Hindus on earth. And the rich ones give a party regularly, sometimes up to a cost of 20 to 30,000 do something, dollars to do something good for people because it gains them points before their God. And when you get a chance, probably shouldn't bring this up because it will challenge some of you. <clears throat> Look up the Hindu version of the prodigal son. Wake you sick. Since you're a Christian, but believe it or not, it's the way most people think. It is all on the basis of merit. And in the real story of the prodigal son, 
When he came back, he was going to say his, to his father, make me one of your hired servants. And the father stopped him. I'm no more worthy than to be called your son. Be quiet. Bring the robe and put it on his shoulders. Put shoes on his foot. Put a ring on his finger. This my son was dead. is alive. He's lost and is found. We don't understand that. When I say we, I think we do. But Christians in general, or so-called Christians, don't understand that. Wow. I love where we are if we stand solidly for Christ. Look at chapter 4. We'll consider the covenant with Abraham, and we'll go into Genesis 15 when we get there. Don't want to do that right now. But then, what then shall we say that Abraham our father had found according to the flesh? For if Abraham had been justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Incidentally, James says he was justified by works, but that word is used in a different way. Abraham was justified not by merit, but he was justified when he obeyed. And uh, Paul could have said here, for if Abraham was justified by merit, if he had earned salvation, he'd have something to boast about. But the scripture says Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. That word accounted is an accounting term. It was put on his book. It was put in his column as a credit to him. Why? Because of God's righteousness. Because of God's righteousness. His faith received that credit. That's big. He did not waver. Now, he did have a problem. He struggled a bit, but he did not separate himself from God at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Abraham believed God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, the Bible says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. New information here. What's it said in the Old Testament? Oh, here's what it means. The more we sin, the more grace we have, right? Well, look at chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I'm not going to do much Greek in here, but I have to do this. I have to do this right here because the uh, King James Version says, God forbid, which incidentally is not good terminology. It's street language uh, for no. The word God doesn't even appear in the text. And the King James Version, incidentally, was uh, rejected by some because it contained God's name in it when it not, did not belong there. Now you think of the way we would say, no, not we. You think of the way the ordinary man would say, no in an absolute sense, in our culture. That is no worse than what was said right here. God forbid. May genito is the word. May means not. No. Never. Genito. Hatched. Born. To bring into existence. May this thought never be brought into existence. That's what certainly not is translated for here. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What does that mean? Baptized into his death. Into what he gained in death for us. 
He died for us. He died that we wouldn't have to die. Or we died with him. Let's put it that way. Galatians 2.20. I love this. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. If you're crucified, Paul, you're dead. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Uh, Not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a powerful statement. If you're a Christian, you were crucified with Christ. And it's not you who live. Your life is not your life. You live in Christ. You live by the faith of the Son of God. Didn't say you live by the faith in the Son of God, but you live by the faith of the Son of God. You live by His faith. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. But look at the next. Therefore we are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Very plain, isn't it? Chapter 7. The business of law is not to commend or forgive anybody. It's rather to identify sin and to judge the sinner. That's what law is for. It's necessary. God's law is perfect. Not only does it identify sin, but through the commandment, the Jews recognize sin to be exceedingly sinful in the law. Now, there are some sins that are just not, they're not important. They're not They're not bad at all. For example, coveting. That's not a bad sin because it doesn't hurt anybody. I'm just going to covet all I want to. I'm not going to steal anything, but I'm going to hate you for what you have. I'm going to hope you lose it, but I'm not going to touch you. That's all right. That's not what Paul said. Paul is saying here that, that this, that the law made sin exceedingly sinful. You know what the last commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. What difference does it make? Different enough that it's the 10th commandment. 10 commandments, this is the 10th one. It is a very important commandment. It made sin, it made that little sin that's unimportant, exceedingly sinful. So grace and law are not mutually exclusive. We need both of them. We have to have both of them. They serve together. Grace is necessary for salvation. Law is necessary for guidance and conduct. Since sin does not control the Christian, we're under condemnation, but we're not under condemnation, but we're free. John said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our sins. Did you hear that? Our goodness cleanses our sin. Our merit, our uh, getting more good, on this balance here, cleanses our sins. No, no. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our sins. Paul said, I was once alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died, and the commandment which I was to bring, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Chapter 8. There is therefore no condemnation now to those who are in Christ. Who walk according to the flesh. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For the law of the spirit of life is Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus had made us free from sin and death. The law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. I like that. How can this be? Look at the next verses. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned law in the, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then at the end of that chapter, who can separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All answers, no, no, no. Well, the once saved, always saved. You get saved, nothing can separate you. Not what he says. He says these things can't separate you. But we can still turn away from God. The devils, angels, and everybody else can't separate us. We can. We can obey him. Move away from God. But the power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 9. Paul is grieved because his Jewish brethren are rejecting salvation. He even makes a statement, verse 3, and this statement is hard. I could wish myself, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. Accursed means cut off. Cut off even to death. A curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. They have everything. And they're not accepting it. But it is not that the word of God has no effect. For they're all, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It's kind of contradictory, isn't it? They're not all Israel who are of Israel. What does that mean? No contradiction there. He's saying just because they're descendants of Abraham does not mean that they have salvation. Are they all all children because they are the seed of Abraham? But in Isaac your seed shall be called. I have to get to this later, but... Jacob and Esau. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. God is partial. No, he's not partial. Because his seed had to come through somebody. These were twins. Jacob and Esau. He could not send his seed through both of them. So God said, I selected Jacob to do this. And I rejected Esau. That's just the way it had to be. I had to select one, reject the other one. That's the way it is. Chapter 10, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record, a witness, that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They didn't know God's righteousness. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You hear what he's saying? They're saved by We are saved by God's righteousness, not our righteousness. Our righteousness are as, our righteousness is as filthy rags. God's righteousness has to be given to us so we can be saved. 
since whosoever believes on him will not be ashamed. Paul lauds gospel preaching. He quotes Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace. Has God cast away his people? No. Chapter 11, Paul says, certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's not cast me away. There's a remnant here, of course. We talked about that some time ago when we talked about the remnant that was left in uh, in Babylon, in Persia, and came over to Jerusalem, just 10% or so. But Nehemiah took that remnant and Ezra and restarted that nation. Just that simple. God permitted the Gentile entrance into the kingdom. The Jews rejected him. The natural branches were broken off. And the Gentiles were grafted in. Very simple, isn't it? The wild olive tree contributed branches to the tame olive tree, which had a good root section. And therefore, the church was established, composed of Gentiles and Jews. Incidentally, the Roman Christians were primarily Gentiles, by the way. Isn't that amazing? Chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Some of you knew Jane McWhorter. She was a lovely woman. Died several years ago. Jane said one time, you know, I think I could die for Christ. I think if somebody held a sword to, to my chest and said, you renounce Christ to die, I wouldn't have any problem saying I'm not going to do that. But that's not what God requires. He requires a living sacrifice. I've got to do that every minute of every day. And there's the challenge. And it is the challenge. We can come here on Sunday, be the greatest kind of Christians, hit the world on Monday and it's a different world and Satan is all about us. And we have to meet temptation in a very different way. Living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. That is his reasonable service. Every Christian had his own measure of faith. Whatever his gift was in that first century, prophesying, teaching, or whatever, it had to be done without hypocrisy. He was to abhor evil and cleave that which is good all the time. Bless those who were, perse- who were persecuting him. Rejoice and weep with others. He was to overcome evil with good. Chapter 15. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Government was set up by God. And we, uh, we should abide by those laws. I was amazed the other day because I wanted to move into the right lane. A car was pretty close and I turned my signal light on. 
This happened to be a woman driver. I have to say that. She sped up and wouldn't let me in. I had to back off and get behind her when somebody else let me in. Isn't it amazing, though, when we meet each other face to face and you make a request to me or you almost step on my foot and say, excuse me, I say, that's all right. But when we're in a car, it doesn't work that way. You blow our horns at each other. Call each other bad names. At least some people do. Shouldn't be that way. We're at chapter 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Several years ago, I was in an eastern country. I was having dinner with a family, and the gentleman there, Christian, he said, Brother Andrews, is it sinful to eat a cat? I looked down at my plate. I said, well, <laughs> no, but I wouldn't do it. He's probably thinking you are. No, he didn't. He said, well, I used to eat cats. They're good. But since I've become a Christian, I haven't eaten one. I said, thank you. I appreciate that. But it isn't sinful to eat a cat. It sure would hurt my whatever. A dog. Not sinful to eat a dog. Ouch. And a brother who does that, he's still my brother. He's still my brother. Because I would offend him, some of them, by eating a pig. And I do like ham. Sorry about that. We should not judge each other by personal subjective standards. Someone came to me one time and said, James, that church is gone. Called the name of the church. I said, what do you mean? They quit meeting on Wednesday night. I said, really? Yeah. They don't, eat, they don't meet on Wednesday night anymore. So they meet Tuesday. No, they, they meet only on Sunday. They're not faithful. <clears throat> that must be the gospel advocate definition because the Bible didn't say that. I agree that I need to meet on Wednesday night. If the elders here would say, we're not going to meet on Wednesday night anymore, I'd be disappointed. But I wouldn't think the elders had done something wrong, sinful. If they came in and said, we're not going to meet on Sunday anymore, we're going to meet on Saturday I think that was wrong because the Bible teaches different. But my personal subjective standards don't work. Only the Bible with its standards work. Chapter 15, we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, not to please ourselves. Your Bible says scruples there. I'm quoting. I, I marry the King James Version with everything else when I read. You know that already. Just the way it is. I learned King James. Now I use New King James we should bear the scruples of the weak and not please ourselves. I came upon a situation one time when in the Caribbean when a woman was teaching a group of men. She was a good teacher 
And she invited everybody to her class. And many of the men went. I went to the director and I said, look, another man and I went to the director. And I said, this is not right. I said, this is a religious gathering. And we should not be have men taught by women. And the other preacher said, I might be the weaker brother, but I, I agree with that too. I looked at him, I said, I'm not the weaker brother. It's what the Bible says. We're not going to do it here. Well, next morning, <clears throat> there are some here who have complained because some men are going into a class, so forth. So we're going to move that class over across the hall, close the door. Thank you. And if he had said, James Andrews has complained, I'd have said, here I am. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Chapter 16, Jesus became a servant to the Jews, so the Jewish brethren must rejoice with Gentile Christians. Paul closes the book by recognizing fellow Christians in Rome and Corinth. He's writing from Corinth, incidentally. I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church of Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of saints, and assist her in whatever business she has in need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and also of me. And while I'm here on this subject, and according to the statement I've just made, who's the most important in the church, men or women? Don't even ask it because there's no, no answer to that. We are equally important. Who's the most saved? Equally saved. Who makes the greatest contribution? Equally. A woman has roles. Men have roles. We must carry them out as God told us. Phoebe had a role. I don't know what all she did. She was a mail carrier, I think, for one, but whatever else. And Paul commends 30 others, unnamed, then Aquila and Priscilla. He says, who have risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the church of the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, you get out there, and you might know what that means. had a man years ago to pick me up, picked me up and carried me to his car. I weighed 240 pounds. He was a Russian. Set me in his car and took me to the hospital. That's tough stuff. And companions there, American companions, who stayed by my side the whole time. The final statement. Now unto him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret such since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scripture made known to all nations according to the commandment, the everlasting God, for the obedience of the faith, to God alone wise, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. I love it. This is a fabulous book. I'm going to confess something to you. There's things I don't know about the book of Romans. I've studied it for a long time. I've never systematically taught it in Bible classes, yes, in worship and so forth, but not any more than that. 
I feel much more comfortable in Hebrews and some other places, but the book of Romans is very precious. And we need to get the whole point because it is the manual that lets us know how salvation occurs. In gospel meetings, I used to preach the plan of salvation one sermon. Now I preach two sermons. I preach God's plan of salvation, his part, man's salvation, his part. And they're very different, but they meet like this. I hope you see that when we finish this book. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.